Welcome to the River Fellowship Podcast. This week, lead pastor Daryl Anderson takes us through Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. Paul prays an amazing prayer for the believers in Ephesus that has great application for us today. He prays we know certain things, and knowing these things changes everything. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter one. We're in the midst of our study in Ephesians, walking through the book of Ephesians. Last week we started in chapter one and dealt with celebrating God's goodness. We're going to stay in chapter one, uh, but this time we're going to look at Paul's prayer. At least it starts as a prayer, then it kind of moves to a sermon and a just kind of an explosion of praise. Uh, but it's a prayer that Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. Let's pick up in verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints." and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church." Here we see a prayer of Paul for the Ephesians. We see in verse 16, he says, I've not stopped remembering you. Verse 17, he says, I keep asking. So we see here that Paul has this pattern, this practice, this persistence in praying for the Ephesians believer. It kind of makes me stop and just think about my own prayer life. I don't consider myself a prayer warrior at all. I'm trying to grow in my prayer life. But let me just ask you, do you ever find it hard to pray? (laughs) Ever have times when you don't even really want to pray? I have. I don't know why it's so hard to pray. Maybe it's because we're so busy, we just don't think we have the time to allot to it. Maybe we don't know what, really what to say. Maybe we wonder if prayer really is even effective. Is it even doing anything? I do know for sure that it's spiritual warfare and the enemy doesn't want us praying because he does understand the power of prayer. But for whatever reason, it seems like it's hard to pray. Ever had that experience where you kind of sat down to pray and and you thought, man, I've been praying for a long time. You're so excited. You look up, it's been two or three minutes. (laughs) It's just hard to pray sometimes. But prayer is a critical, vital link into the life of every believer. And it's a vital critical link into the life of a church. For part of that reason, I want to share just a a quick commercial with you before we continue in the text. Starting in September, we're going to start a new service that's really been on my heart and the elders' hearts ever since the inception of River Fellowship, but we've just now kind of come to the place where we're ready to implement it. But we're going to start a a once-a-month prayer service on Wednesday night. It's actually going to be the Wednesday after the first Sunday of the month, if that makes sense. So every first Sunday of the month, that Wednesday, we're going to have a prayer service. So the first one is Wednesday night, September the 5th, that's 6.30. 
It's at the Baptist Community Services building at uh, 701 Park Place. That's where we actually met for several weeks during the inception of River Fellowship before we moved here to Ascension. And it's, it's just committed to prayer. We'll have a little bit of worship, but we're gonna pray together, praying for our city, our community, praying for unchurched, lost people that don't know Christ, praying for ourselves, praying for spirits. We're just gonna pray because it's critical link in our church. So I invite you uh, to be a part of that service on September 5th. You'll hear more about it later. Let's get back into the text now. Here we see prayer, Paul praying for prayer. And if I could break down prayer into two kind of elements, to me, prayer is all about impact and intimacy. Prayer is first about intimacy with God, and then that leads to the impact that prayer can have. And Paul kind of hits on all of that as we go through the process. But in the text, Paul prays for two things very specifically for the Ephesians believers that I think we can apply. First, he prays for wisdom and revelation. Verse 17, I pray that you would know that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, wisdom here is just discernment we talk a lot about, but revelation here is a, is a disclosed information. It's disclosing information to someone so they gain understanding, and it's really targeted to close associates. In other words, revelation comes to those who are in close association with the Father. He, he discloses information about himself so that we can gain some understanding about who he is. He says that in verse 17. Why does he pray for wisdom and revelation? So that we would know him better. We could realize his love for us. We realize how he really sees us. And verse four says he sees us as holy and blameless because when he sees us, he sees Christ in us. So he sees us in the image of Christ. This word know has two connotations. It means to grasp, okay? I want to get a grip on it and understand it. It also means to recognize. If you remember the passage about the sheep, the sheep hear my voice, they come because they hear my voice, they know my voice, they recognize my voice. That's this word know. It means I grasp it, but I also recognize it. So when God begins to speak to me, I recognize his voice and I recognize that it's him speaking. So Paul here is praying really for insight and intimacy, that we would gain insight and be intimate with him. He's praying that God would reveal himself so that we would understand him better, that we would walk with him more closely, that we would understand who he is and what he's doing. But then he prays for a second thing. He prays for enlightenment. Verse 18, he prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now that's an interesting phrase, eyes of your heart. Now we've all heard the phrase eyes in the back of your head. I used to think my mom had eyes in the back of her head because I would do something, she would find out some way, who knows. I can remember in elementary school, I had a couple of, of teachers in elementary school, I think they had eyes in the back of their head, they'd be facing the chalkboard, writing on something, and I'd do something back here in class, and just admit it, she didn't even turn around, Daryl, stop it. And I never could figure out why she knew, I think it's because I did so much stuff, she just assumed if something happened, it's probably me. But this is different. This isn't eyes in the back of the head, this is eyes of the heart. In other words, it's talking about a passion a compassion, a connection. In other words, these eyes, this sight is somehow connected to the heart. It's sight that goes beyond physical sight. Really what he's praying about is spiritual sight. This word enlightened in verse eight simply means illuminated. So God's, I mean, Paul's praying here that we would have spiritual sight. 
Now, maybe all of you have had this type of experience. Maybe you've, you've gotten up in the middle of the night, it's pitch black, you're going to get a drink or what have you, and you step on stuff or you run into stuff or you kick something. Why? Because you can't see it. It's dark. You don't have the physical sight. So whatever obstacles are in your way, you end up hitting it or step on it because you can't see it. I was reading a, a few articles from those that are visually impaired this week, uh, and their story's interesting of how they speak of what life is like, you know, not being able to see physically. Now, thankfully, they're able to, to overcome that. Other senses, you know, kick in. They're able to live very strong, healthy, great, successful lives, even being visually impaired. But some of them still share some of the struggles, and, and one particular one did it from a kind of a comedic perspective. It's things that we don't normally think of for people that, that, that are blind. They said, for example, if you go into a restroom, you can't read an out-of-order sign. <laughs> or if you sit on a bench or put your hand against a wall, you can't read wet paint sign. So just funny things like that that you kind of take for granted, you just, you can't see it, so you don't know how to respond, you don't know what's going on. This is kind of what Paul's talking about right here. He's saying, I don't want you to go through life not being able to see through spiritual eyes. I want you to have spiritual sight that you can see the beauty of God and the love of God and the grace of God and the work of God, the movement, the, what I'm doing. I want you to be able to see and understand and comprehend what's going on. Because if we're not careful, we can go through life spiritually blind, not seeing the needs of people around us, not understanding the lostness of people around us, not truly seeing Christ in all of his glory and all of his splendor, not seeing how and where God's working. So what Paul is saying here is the eyes give you spiritual sight, but this spiritual sight is connected to your heart. It's connected to passion. In other words, loving people who are lost without Christ comes from an ability to see them as Christ sees them. Meeting needs of people that are hurting and in need comes from a heart and a compassion that desires to see their need the way Jesus Christ sees their need. It's spiritual sight. It's not physical sight. So Paul is saying, I pray that you would be enlightened and that you would have spiritual sight. And then he gives two very uh, specific elements that he wants us to be able to see. And the first is in verse 18. He, he said, I want you to see and know the hope to which he has called us. He wants us to know the hope that we have waiting. We can't see hope. We can't see the riches of God's grace through our physical eyes. It only comes through this spiritual sight that Paul is praying for. So he's praying that we would have that spiritual perspective. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a story of Elisha, the prophet. And he's with his servant, and the king of Aram has, has gathered his forces. He's coming to attack. So he's gathered his forces and there's thousands of horsemen and chariots all lined up coming after him. And really standing here is just Elijah and his servant. And so in the text, the servant is fearful and, and, and he's expressing that to Elisha. So Elisha responds back to the servant, don't be afraid because those that are with us are more than those that are with them. Now this isn't in the text, but the servant, in my mind, just has to be going. There's two of us. The servant can't see anything. So Elijah prays, open his eyes. And so in the text, it says, God opened his eyes. He looked 
and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So this servant all of a sudden has spiritual sight, is seeing what's taking place in the spiritual realm, and there's just thousands of hosts of angels of chariots of fire surrounding this other army. Sometimes we can go through life like the servant, going through life not being able to see what God's doing, see what God's up to, to see the protection and all the stuff that God has provided for us. We go through life fearful and afraid and powerless because we can't see. He wants us to be like Elisha, who has that spiritual perspective and that spiritual insight. Hope here means that, that expectation that we're longing for. It's not maybe it's gonna happen, it's that certainty. It's really talking specifically here about the return of Christ, the glorious appearing. It's that eternal home that we have waiting, heaven. He's wanting us to know and understand what awaits us, that we have this glorious home, relationship with him forever. Why is that so important? When we understand the hope that we have, it changes everything. It changes how we view life and how we go through life. Number one, it lessens my fear. When I understand the hope that I have, that eternal home, it lessens my fear. Every survey you look at, when you look at what are the top fears for individuals, on the top list all the time is the fear of death. But if I know the hope that awaits me in eternity, it lessens that fear. And once that fear is alleviated, it changes the way I live. But secondly, it loosens my grip. When I understand this glorious inheritance, this, this riches of God's grace that awaits me in eternity, it loosens my grip on all my stuff right now. This stuff that I think in this life is so important and is so good, it, it, it loosens my grip on this stuff because I realize there's something much more glorious and rewarding awaiting for me. But it also lightens my load. Scripture says, our present suffering does not compare with the glory that awaits us. So when I'm going through those days of struggle, when the weight of pressures and suffering and persecution and trials and all these things that all of us go through in our life, when I understand that the glory awaits me, it, it, it just lightens that burden to, for me to realize this is just temporary. Something better is waiting but it also aligns my priorities. When I have that spiritual perspective, it helps me to, to see people from a spiritual perspective rather than just a physical perspective. It allows me to see what's more important. Now I'm living life based on what God has for me from a spiritual dynamic and I see the spiritual ramifications. So when I'm speaking to someone, I've got a spiritual mindset about where are they spiritually rather than just kind of shooting the breeze. It, it just changes everything if we know the hope that he's called us to. But he prays for something else. In verse 19, he prays that we would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. He not only wants us to, to understand the hope that we have, but also the power that we have currently. This word incomparably simply means beyond. It means excessive. It means beyond comparison. We so underestimate, and when I say we, I'm not talking about just us, just we as people, we as believers in general. We so underestimate the power of God. 
We so underestimate the capability of God. And as a result, we so underestimate and underuse the power that he has given us through his spirit. We go through life so powerless at times when God's given us this incomparably great power to defeat the enemy. Now, we all understand that we're in a spiritual warfare. There is such a thing as spiritual warfare. We'll talk about that more when we get to chapter six. The reality is that we have an enemy who is constantly shooting those arrows at us, firing those darts at us. But scripture tells us that we have power over the enemy. First John, greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. James 4, 7 tells us that if we submit to God, we can resist the devil and he has to flee. Now he'll come back, but he has to flee. We have power to resist the enemy. And the enemy loves to come against us in the area of temptations and thoughts. He attacks us with temptation and he attacks us in our thought life. Now we think, we talk a lot about temptations, but I think sometimes we forget that the enemy attacks our thought life. That's why scripture says, take captive every thought to think on good things. Let me give you an example of that. This is just very current for me. Last, last Sunday morning when I was sitting over here during worship before I was gonna come preach. Usually I'm very um, in, engrossed in the worship. I love the opportunity to sing and to worship. And our praise team does such a wonderful job leading us into worship. But last Sunday, uh, I, just, I, couldn't, I couldn't worship. My, my spirit was just heavy. And I began to have all these uh, negative thoughts, self-defeating thoughts, thoughts of unworthiness and ineffectiveness and just all of that stuff. And so when I'm sitting there, I'm just, you know, it's just a way to burden. I didn't want to come preach because I felt like there's no way I can come up here and preach with these thoughts of unworthiness just kind of gripping me. That went on for several minutes. Finally, I realized, I think it was the Spirit of God that, that, that just revealed it to me and said, Daryl, this is spiritual warfare. The enemy is throwing these thoughts of unworthiness in your head. So as soon as I learned that, I just, I just began to pray for about 10 or 15 seconds right before I came to preach, just, just claiming the power over the enemy, enemy, claiming victory. God reversed those thoughts and brought me to the place of, of being ready to, to come preach. I'm saying all that to say this. Do you have those feelings and times and moments of unworthiness? Well, let me share a little nugget with you. Maybe this is for somebody, it's for me for sure. Maybe it's for somebody else. This little nugget when you have those, those thoughts. Number one, you are unworthy. <laughs> it's not, so am I. We are unworthy. That's a fact. But the real key is who's speaking that into you? Is it the enemy or is it God's spirit? If the enemy is speaking unworthiness into you, that's going to lead to guilt. But if the spirit of God is speaking that into you, it's gonna to lead to grace. If the enemy, Satan, is speaking into you that you're unworthy, that guilt's gonna to lead to condemnation. But if the spirit of God is speaking, that grace is going to lead to gratitude. If the enemy is speaking to you, that guilt's gonna to lead to condemnation, which is going to result in uselessness. 
But if the Spirit of God is speaking it, that gratitude is going to lead to usefulness. In other words, if the enemy, when he comes and he attacks you in your thought life saying you are unworthy, you can't be used, you're going to feel guilty, you're going to feel condemned, and now you're going to feel useless. You're going to say, God doesn't love me, God can't use me, God has no worth, I have no worth to the kingdom, and you're going to become useless in the kingdom because you think God can't use me. But if the Spirit of God is speaking to you and saying, yes, you are unworthy, but that's what grace is all about. I've made you worthy because of the blood of Christ. And grace has covered that. And when we understand what grace has done in our life, that leads to gratitude where we say, God, thank you so much. I realize I'm so unworthy, but thank you for receiving me and accepting me. That leads to usefulness that says, God, I can't help but serve you. Thank you for your grace. I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful. What can I do to serve you? See the difference? So the key is when you feel those thoughts and those voices, you need to discern immediately which voice is it. And if it's the voice of the enemy, Scripture says you need to resist him and then tell him don't let the door hit you on the way out. After he talks about this power, though, he expounds on it. Verse 19. He says, that power, this power he's just talked about, this incomparably great power, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, that word there is a Greek word, dunamis. And that word means an explosive power. It means a miraculous power. It means a supernatural power. I want to illustrate this word for you. One reason is because I think when we see things sometimes, it helps cement the truth. The second reason I want to do this one is I get to play with firecrackers. <laughs> this, little, this is the smallest firecracker you can buy. This little firecracker is going to represent this incomparably great power that Paul's talking about. Okay? This cup represents us. And we're going to see what this little firecracker does to this cup. Now, this is going to, be, going to be a little loud noise, so if you don't like loud noises, just cover your ears. But watch the cup. I want you to see what happens to the cup with this firecracker. By the way, <laughs> I have tested this several times, and sometimes it didn't work at all. Sometimes it worked okay. Sometimes it worked great. I have no idea what's about to happen. Okay? I hope it's a good one. It's okay. <laughs> Here's the point. This little bitty firecracker took this stationary inanimate object and made it a projectile. It throws it up in the air. That little Bit, that little bitty bit of firecracker, that kind of power to move that. This is the kind of power that he's talking about. It's interesting in the text that Paul does not talk about creation power. He could have said this power is like creation. Imagine the power of creation. When God takes nothing and speaks into existence everything that exists, trillions of stars, the galaxies, everything that exists, the kind of power that takes, that's creation power. But evidently, there's a power greater than creation power, and it's resurrection 
power. The power that can take something that's dead and bring it back to life. This is the kind of power that Paul's talking about is in us. He wants us to understand this incomparable great power of the resurrection that resides in us. It's the power that is so great it can take somebody who is dead in their sin and bring them to life. If you're here this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, there's never been that point when you said yes to his sacrifice, realizing that his death on the cross was a substitute for you paying for your own sin. If you've never invited him into your life, scripture says that presently you are dead in your sin. But the great news is he has the power to bring you to life where you can experience life in Christ. But if you're here this morning, even though you've given your life to Christ, he still has the power to take that which is dead and bring it to life. Is your passion for the lost, for the unchurched, for those that don't know Christ, has it died? He can bring it back to life. Has your passion to pursue Christ and pursue holiness in the name of Christ died? He can bring that back to life. Has your passion to serve the Lord in faithfulness died? He can bring that back to life. Has your love for the church and what God's doing through the church died? He can bring it back to life. It's a resurrection power that says, I want you to understand how great this power is. It's so great that it can take whatever has died in you and bring it back to life. Now, this prayer that he prays, the prayer kind of stops, but it actually leads him into just this great discourse on Jesus Christ and who he is. Remember, these first few chapters are real doctrinal and real theological in nature. The latter latter chapters are more practical and living. But here in verse 20, let's look at it again. He just goes off talking about Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus is at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church. Remember Ephesus in the context Paul's writing. Ephesus was the hub of the worship for the goddess Artemis. In fact, it had the largest temple to the goddess Artemis in the world at that time. Big financial boom, that was the hub of that worship. On top of that, they had 50 some odd more uh, temples of other false gods and idols. And the Greeks and Romans at that time had this, you know, this mythology, this, this kind of um, ranking of all these gods of different things. And so they were always talking about, okay, which God's higher than this God and this God's stronger than this God and this God's bigger than this God. On top of that, the Gnostics had, a, had a, an angelic hierarchy. So which angels are better? So in this culture at this time when Paul's writing, all these people in Ephesus think about or discuss or have a belief of all these different gods that are trying to figure out which one is higher and which one is stronger. In the midst of all that context, Paul says in verse 21 that Jesus Christ is far above all of those rule and authority, dominion and power. Every title, that word far above, it it means higher or greater, but it's using distance. 
to, to signify greater and higher. What it's saying is all these other gods, they're way down here. It doesn't matter which one's higher than the other because they're, all of them are down here. But Jesus is far above every one of them. He's far greater. He's far stronger than any of these other gods. There's no comparison. Familiar with the term goat? Not the animal, but the acronym. In athletics, what does it stand for? Greatest of all time. In sports, you always have this kind of conversation, who's the greatest of all time? Well, in basketball, that conversation revolves around Michael Jordan and LeBron James. Sometimes, you know, some other names get thrown in the mix, but generally it's those two guys right now. Which one's the greatest? You know why there's an argument and a discussion as to which one's the greatest? Because there's evidence for either one of them being the greatest. There's some stats, there's an argument. You could make a case for either one of these guys being the greatest of all time. So one of them may technically be the greatest, but they're not far above, they're close. What Paul's saying here is there's no comparison. There's no discussion. There's no argument. You can't take any other ruler, any other dominion, any other principality, any other God, and compare them to Jesus Christ. He is so far above, there's no comparison to Jesus. Why? Because only Jesus died for your sins and removed the stain. Only Jesus rose from the dead. Only Jesus can make a way to the Father. Only Jesus is God incarnate. Only Jesus sits on the throne in heaven. Only Jesus, Revelation said, is the one worthy to open the scroll. Only Jesus was worthy to be riding the white horse. Only Jesus is worshiped by every living creature in heaven. And only Jesus deserves the title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul just goes off. But he didn't stop there. He puts an exclamation point on it in verse 22. And all things are under his feet. He's far above and all these others are down here. And Jesus is ruler over all. That's what Paul wants us to see. That's his prayer for the Ephesian believers. But it's his prayer for us as well. And here's the prayer that we would know the hope that we have. That we would know the power that we have. And that we would know Jesus intimately. Because when we know those things, it changes everything. Would you bow with me? Take just a moment, allow the Spirit to speak to your heart. Whatever you need to hear this morning. We're going to close our service in a moment with just another time to worship together. But it's also a time to respond. We have some people on the side that would love to pray with you if, if there's anything you want to pray about. It may be something about yourself. It, you may be praying for somebody else. Maybe you have a friend, family member, or coworker that, that you're not sure knows Christ. You want to share Christ. You need some, some prayer support. That's what these guys are here for, to give some prayer, some prayer support. You may want to worship. You may want to just stay seated and just pray and allow the Spirit to speak. But it's an opportunity to respond to what the Spirit of God has said to you this morning. Father, we pray that whatever you need to say in us, we would hear. Whatever you need to do in us this morning, we would allow.
We thank you for the hope that we have. We thank you for the power that we have. We thank you for the privilege that we have to know you. So, Father, may you continue to reveal yourself to us that we would go through this life and this week with spiritual sight. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.